This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Coolman. And we have a great show in line for you today. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Jennifer Holmgren, uh, CEO of Lanzatech, to the show. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hey, good to hear from you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, you know, let's start a little bit with your background and how you came to Lanzatech. Yeah, so, so I'm a chemist. I'm your typical um, kid who grew up during the space program and decided she wanted to be an astronaut and settled for engineering and chemistry. <laughs> well, you know, it's um, interesting. You might have chosen the right profession because I hear that the spacesuits don't actually fit I'm, women I, astronauts. Yeah. Well, if, if it's one right, of them at right. a time, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> one at a time, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but anyways, um, oh, yeah, and, and so... Um, I, I worked on energy most of my life. Most of my career was always very interested in clean energy. And um, I was approached by Sean Simpson, the founder of Lanzatech. And um, I heard about this technology and I said, oh, not really. That can't work. And then... Oh, so you were a skeptic. Could. <laughs> what? You were a bit of a skeptic to start off with. I, I was. Yeah, I'm a chemist. You know, we always kind of <laughs> biology, you know. Um, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But this sounded so interesting and so potentially impactful that um, um, got my head wrapped around it and decided maybe I can help um, make it reality. And, and so I jumped on board. So, all right. So you were a skeptic, I guess, so far it's like, well, of what? So I, so tell us a little bit more about Lanzatech right, and sort of right. what the innovation is. Yeah. So, you know, you, you all have beer, wine. You're used to the fermentation of sugar, right? To right. make ethanol. I enjoy well, both of those things. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, but um, what we do is we have a bacteria above, and instead of eating sugar, eats things like carbon monoxide, hydrogen, and carbon dioxide, which happen to be what is coming out a lot of flu stacks, like uh, in steel mills and refineries, etc. So basically what the bug likes to eat is stuff that we don't want in our air. So uh, converts pollution to ethanol. Wow. And and so I want to unpack that a little bit. So, you know, first of all, uh, I think our listeners can probably get an, an image of that stack, right? The nasty, you know, polluting stack, stack factory yeah, stack, exactly. right? And But tell us a little bit more about the broader environmental issue that this technology is combating. Yeah, so, so it's basically carbon pollution, if you stop and think about it. So the, the first leg of that is, of course, all of the particulate emissions that make it really hard for us to breathe um, are basically coming out our flus because we're burning carbon. And, of course, the other problem is increasing carbon pollution, CO2 emissions, means we're increasing our greenhouse gas problem. And that's really fundamentally what we're tackling. Um, I'm sitting here in China right now. Our first commercial plant is working here in China. And, and you know, the air is, is tough to breathe. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's about all the particulates in the air. And, of course, that's really hurting our planet right now. 
is is the greenhouse gases, the CO2 that we're just increasing and increasing over time in our atmosphere. Cheryl, I have a quick question for you. Um, You know, I think our listeners here in the U.S., we probably take our air quality a little for granted. You know, you think about China, as as, um, Dr. Holmgren just mentioned. And, you know, L.A., we hear about smog there, maybe New York City still. But when you moved to Philadelphia, was air quality an issue here or had it sort of been mitigated a little bit? I think there were um, every now and then we would get a lot of the uh, air quality warnings um, that's kind of combined with the environment, with the weather and the the temperature and all of that. But it wasn't too bad. Not too bad. Maybe because the industrial center had moved out already. Exactly. So we, we don't have a lot of heavy industrial factories in in Philadelphia anymore. Got it. And so, um, Dr. Holmgren, tell us a little bit more about the state of of things in China. Why why are you there? Yeah. um, So when we started trying to deploy our technology, we knew that steel mills were our first target market because they have the gas that the bug likes to eat, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you're a small company, right? 50% of the steel was being produced in China. China, um, and the other reason is at the time they were when when we first started building our our demonstration plant here, and then our commercial plant, our first commercial, um, they were super keen on environmental technologies, new technologies that um, they could deploy, and so they were interested in helping to commercialize such things, and so. Um, it made it easy for us to find a partner because, you know, when you're doing something new, you usually get told a lot of no's before you get a yes. They're as skeptical and as you so, were. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. And so, um, you know, we figured if we go to a place where there's a large concentration of people that partner with us, we will find one that's excited and eager and you always find somebody who wants to change the world with you, and so here we are. Interesting. So tell us a little bit about, I mean, how how does this work, right? I mean, so I've got this, this sense of the, the flus and all the bad pollution coming out of it, and your little bug that likes to eat this stuff. How do they come together? Do you yeah. c- capture the, the <laughs> so, pollutants or what? E- yeah, so actually we don't let them actually get emitted. So before they're emitted, um, when they're still concentrated, so these stacks have about 50% carbon monoxide, which is what we use, we just compress it. If you can imagine a big bioreactor, like if you were fermenting beer, big bioreactor, um, and you just have a compressor that pumps the gas into the bioreactor. So it goes, the compressor uh. is a has connected to a pipe to the steel mill, compressed into the bioreactor. In the bioreactor, what you're going to have is water and the bug. And actually, it's not just water. It's interesting. Um, Just like you need vitamins and minerals, so does the bug, just like a plant needs fertilizer. So floating in the water along with the bug are some vitamins and minerals. And this guy's living, dividing, eating this emission and making ethanol, and then we recover the ethanol on the back end in a distillation tower um, and sell it for fuel. Huh. And um, so that's that's it, yeah. Um, it's actually, you know, one other thing I would say that's, that's a little different also from making beer is this is looks more like a refinery because it's a continuous process. 
So, like, you know, when you make beer, you put it in a big bat and it takes months. Um, here, it happens in seconds. So the bug is really efficient at eating this. And that's actually, to be honest, one of the things I really love about this technology is because it looks more like a refinery, because the chemistry happens quickly, it's really, really scalable. So, you know, the world uses 100 million barrels a day of petroleum. So if you're going to really try to substitute for some of these fossils, you need something that happens quickly that you can scale, really, really scale, so that you can actually start to make a dent in these markets, okay? Because they're just massive, absolutely massive. So that's actually one of the cool things about our technology, just how quickly it happens, how efficient the process is, uh, and how good the bug is at doing this. And, and Jennifer, one of the things that I was noticing um, is sort of thinking about the competitive landscape, too, mm-hmm. of your business. I guess you could think about it potentially in two ways, and correct me if I'm wrong. One is sort of the technology you're doing in capturing and capturing and mitigating the carbon and turning it into ethanol. But also then you said you sell the ethanol and sort of that business. So I think 10% of all of our fuels have some level of mm-hmm. ethanol in it, or it's about 10% of, of fuels have where in our fuels there's 10% ethanol. Sorry, I was trying to figure out how to best <laughs> say that. Um, and, and so the alternatives to producing ethanol are food-based, I think, and crop-based. So can you right. talk a little right. bit more about that landscape too? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's this whole issue that, that people bring up of, of what they call food versus fuel, right? Right. Um, and, you know, Growing crops using good land, using good water, and then turning those sugars into into ethanol that ends up as fuel in a car. And um, I, I know there's a lot of anxiety about that. And um, some people actually argue that, that there is no such thing as food versus fuel. But that is actually why we developed this technology is the idea is to get outside of the food versus fuel so that you can get to massive scale. Um, because eventually you will compete with agriculture and, and that's just not a good competition. So using a waste, using something that nobody has any real use for uh, and turning it into something valuable is, is really um, yeah, it's the a, whole point of this. <laughs> it's just what you want. You've got that double, the, the double approach there, right? Yeah, and I think to your point, like I... I I'm from Kansas. I don't want to compete with the the corn industry at all. <laughs> I think they're they're pretty powerful around here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, and uh, yeah, I guess one of the one of the things that I think is 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 super cool about using wastes is that um, there's really no competition for them, and therefore you use you, you get very cheap, shall we say, feedstock, right? Something people don't want. Mm -hmm. And so that makes the product commercially viable. That's the other problem we have is I think there's there's a lot of anxiety about what it's going to cost us to reduce our carbon emissions, right? Yeah. Um, It's kind of the albatross, right? We know we have to do it, but, but, you know, if you can actually do it in a way that you can make money, then you can actually drive adoption of the technology. We, we built a commercial plant, so we know this stuff is in science fiction, and that plant is making money. 
We're building three other plants in parallel using uh, ferroalloy gas, refining gases, other other waste gases. And the only reason anybody wants to build those plants is to make money. You know, sustainability has to be about the triple bottom line, right, as you guys know. Right, right. Um, so, um, yeah, that's why it's kind of cool. <laughs> that's all I can say. So we talked about a use for ethylene in terms of, um, or ethanol in terms of, you know, fuel production. Um, but ethanol can, I'm, I'm now channeling my father-in-law, he'll be so <laughs> proud, can also be used for ethylene and polyethylene, um, which is used for yeah. plastics. Um, can yeah. you talk more about the opportunities there? And again, maybe this is how this is more sustainable option compared to how we, we create plastics now? Yeah, um, so let me take a step back because one thing that I, that I would say is if, if you're making the same plastic that's being used today for methylene, that's being made today for methylene, and all you're doing is starting from ethanol, you'll have the same sustainability footprint for plastic in terms of disposing of it, recycling. Um, so the key thing is that you don't start with fossil fuel, so you don't start with the energy intensity of a fossil fuel or the carbon footprint of a fossil fuel. So so that you're still solving the carbon emission problem and the recycling of carbon problem. Whether, talk, whether we're talking about fuel itself or plastics. Or plastic. Exactly, exactly. Now, the kind of neat thing about turning it into plastic instead of fuel is if you recycle a steel mill emission to make, say, ethanol, and you put it in a car, you're still burning it, and it still eventually goes out the tailpipe. So at least you used it twice, but you're still emitting in a tailpipe. If you turn it into plastic or a durable good, let's say um, a pair of tennis shoes, right, because ethylene is also used to make um, some of the components that go into tennis shoes or um, fibers in like your t-shirts, mm-hmm. um, if you do that, you've got a durable good, right? So now you've almost sequestered it, not not geologically, not by burying it in the ground, but you sequestered it by putting it into something that will last for a while. And, and if you do that, um, then you're taking that carbon completely out of circulation. And, and, and so that's really a big benefit for the carbon environment. Um, we... Um, we call making products like bottles or, well, what, what we're trying to do is, I guess we're trying to create what we call carbon smart consumers. Consumers that maybe someday will choose between a recycled carbon bottle of plastic, as you were saying, or a um, fresh fossil uh, bottle of plas- bo- a plastic bottle. And, um, you know, kind of like you choose organic milk or fair trade coffee, um, the idea would be that a consumer would be able to make that choice at a store and then drive that behavior change to stop just thinking about fresh fossil, fresh fossil in everything we do. Yeah, and that raises an interesting point because I think that um, listeners and consumers have heard that they should be cognizant about how they might reduce their carbon footprint, but I don't know that a lot of us understand what exactly that means. I mean, I was joking with Nick ahead of time and sort of 
um, I like to travel. And one of the things people say is, do you know how much your carbon footprint is when you're on the plane going to Rome? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to Rome. You know? So yeah. how, how do I offset? How, you know, how, in order for me to feel not guilty about fl- getting on a plane and flying to Rome, how do I offset my, my carbon usage? Yeah, and, and, you know, a lot of airlines actually do offer offsetting programs where you can, um, you know, pay for somebody to, to plant a tree somewhere to pick up the carbon. Our solution is a little different. It, it turns out um, we, we can convert ethanol to jet fuel that looks exactly like conventional jet fuel. Um, and... In fact, we made some and put it on a Virgin Atlantic flight from Orlando to Gatwick last year. On October 2nd, we flew a plane using this sustainable aviation fuel. It's a low-carbon fuel. And so I think what the aviation industry is trying to do is not just buy offsets, like you were saying, but rather um, maybe start substituting some of the fresh fossils kerosene aviation fuel on that plane with a sustainable aviation fuel that has a lower carbon footprint. So you're still flying the same plane, but you're using a fuel that has a better carbon footprint. And and is that sustainable fuel more expensive than the, the standard fuel? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. So, right now it right, is. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but I think, you know, it's it's actually interesting the aviation industry has jumped in and has been trying to help support the development of these new fuels. And because they're trying to help make that happen, um, you know, it's it's like solar, right? right? The more you get out there, the more you drive down the cost curve. That's always true of new technology. So um, absolutely, the, the more of this that we make, um, the more we can drive the footprint down um, and the cost down. Um, we see airports, for example, um, uh, helping fund low-carbon fuel for the airlines that fly out of that airport. We see, um, we actually see large corporations getting together um, to help offset the cost um, of putting some of the sustainable aviation fuel in, in planes. So hmm. um, it's an industry that, that's really trying to do something. Yeah, and I think that you're right that as, as you have more opportunities to use this kind of fuel, it, it drives innovation in financing and different ways to make the product, different ways to use it, and all of that just really spurs more development around that. Well, and I think that, you know, that sort of leads me to my next question is sort of thinking about maybe your investors. We talked at the top of the show when even the founders brought you on or tried to woo you, you were skeptical. Right. And like other, you know, maybe your your customers have been skeptical. You know, how have you attracted investors into your company and have they been a little more strategic like the airline industry? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, um, we've raised actually, just, just so you know, so the company was founded in 2005. Our first commercial plant started up last year, so 13 years. Um, yeah, which is actually... Not long right. for for a brand new technology. Right, yeah, right. Um, yeah, and um, we raised two hundred and fifty million dollars to get to this point. Wow! And we've yeah, and that's what it takes to to do something this different, this disruptive, and um, it um, 
it started out with VCs. Um, sure. In K, the, the company was founded in New Zealand, and so the first investor was K1W1 Kiwi, if you will. Um, and um, Vinod Kosla was actually the one that worked with Sean to to get me to come to, to Lanzatex. So we have the standard VCs, but later in time, it's not been necessarily airlines, but other strategic. We have investors from the petroleum industry, Indian mm-hmm. Oil, for example, Petronas, uh, Suncor. Um, we have investors who um, are committed to reducing their carbon footprint and are trying to invest to see if they can find technologies that can help them do that. Um, steel companies have invested in us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a really, really broad mix. Mitsui is one of our investors, a large trader of fuels and chemicals. So... Um, just a, a lot of different people, and, and from all over the world. We just had a board meeting last week. People flew in from California, from Malaysia, from Japan, um, from Europe. And so it, it really um, shows you how hard and how far and wide you have to look to get money to do something like this. But you do find people that are committed and who are willing to not just help you with cash, but with ideas and connections. So, well, and, and um, Jennifer, that's what's uh, interesting to me. And I want to remind our, our listeners that we're speaking with Jennifer Holmgren and the CEO of Lanza Tech. And, you know, I, I, I think as just an individual could get discouraged when I listen to more of the policy debate around yeah. these types of issues and, and you know, climate US change, policy. U.S. policy specifically. Yeah. But when you really dig under the hood, you know that you know, the petroleum industry and it's it's global and and people are investing in this area, not just sort of the the do gooder VCs right. like we have a lot on our show, but rather, you know, really mainstream VCs and then strategic large scale investors. You know that they're really considering this, I think, from a from a really obviously strategic angle, long term vision type of, of perspective. Well, mm-hmm. we had one of our professors on the show who was talking about how um the U.S. government, the uh, army of that, is very aware of the the importance of sustainability and climate change and reducing carbon footprints as a national security aspect. So it's really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, actually, in my old job, I worked for um, EOP, which is part of Honeywell, and we actually made um, the aviation fuel um, that we flew on the Green Hornet, the Navy flew, the F-18 in 2010 on Earth Day, mm. okay? And, yeah, so it, it, um, it, there are a lot of people who are super concerned about what's happening on carbon and the impacts, whether it's the military wondering what they're going to need to do to prepare, um, whether it's farmers, look at the flooding, whether, you right. know, people... So it's, I mean, this is a fundamental change to our ecosystem. Absolutely. And pe- exactly. And, and I think people are worried, and, and a lot of people, whether it's the federal level or not, are doing something about it. Um, cities, cities are really stepping up. Um, yeah, lots of good work. So, um, Jennifer, you mentioned this concept, which I found really interesting, sort of "quote unquote" fresh fossil. Mm. Um, you know, and and what you're what you're doing seems to you know it's it's the second generation. You're you're capturing it and you're you're turning it into different things. I'm also um, struck by your conversation. Like we can talk about fuel and then also plastics and let's say water bottles, for instance, and, and clothing, yeah. and clothing. And we know, yeah. I mean, there there are in a number of headlines even today that talk about recycling is 
not profitable anymore. It's a real challenge, and and some cities are stopping it. Yeah. And so this this idea of being a consumer and going to the store and seeing what products could be fresh fossil is is really mm-hmm. interesting to me and not one that I fully wrap my head around. Um, do you feel like that it, for obviously Lanzatech that could be a future for you all, but just that is potentially the future of even consumer packaged goods and and durable goods, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one thing that we really want to do is make sure that other people have the opportunity to do this. So when we talk about carbon smart and recycling carbon, we don't want to be the only carbon recyclers out there. If we are, then the whole world has failed. I mean, we failed, right? That isn't what we want to do. So we really want people to start thinking about what they do with carbon, um, fresh carbon, recycled carbon, and, and we want other people to do some of the same things we're doing. And there's lots of people at earlier stages doing that. And so um, that's what we want. And, you know, I really also want consumers to start thinking about not just where their carbon comes from, but how much carbon we really need. You mentioned going to Rome. I absolutely don't want people to ever be in a position where they can't go to Rome. That would be horrible. Good news but, for you, Cheryl. Like, <laughs> yeah. And she, me. she said it was okay. Me. I can go. <laughs> you can go. Sorry. But, but, but there are other things that we can do in our daily lives, right? Take a train every once in a while. Um, look for products. You know the fashion industry is 10% of the world's carbon footprint? I had no idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we always talk about cars and planes and boats. But we forget that there's an awful lot of other carbon that has to do with the fact that, you know, we might want a new dress every other day. And it goes back to what's in your trash pile and and what's not getting recycled. And, you know, just all this carbon that we're constantly taking out of the air and wasting. And um, so it's what we have to change, but we can do it. It's not just technology. It's also, you know, like putting on a seatbelt, right? We all got to learn. That's what we got to do in the morning, put on the seatbelt, but also think about carbon. Well, it's interesting to think about, because I was, I was just thinking how we all became aware of recycling, right? And sort of would mm-hmm. look for how much of the recycled plastic is in this little water thing that I've got. Shifting to carbon will become, I think, it sounds like a next step for us in some sense, that there would be more awareness that this goes beyond just the recycling and the organic. It's something, it's another thing, to, a factor to look at. Um, and so that's a kind of interesting transition to think about. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. And the way you're thinking about it, I like it a lot because it's it's a transition. It's the next stage. It's, it's not anything that's just completely different or, or mind-boggling, right? It's It's just okay, now we've got to think about the next piece right. to make this all work. Well, then it makes sense given you know Nick's point about recycling facing multiple challenges. It's sort of like, well, what's, what's the better thing to think about than just is it recycled? Right. And so, Jennifer, in the last minute or so that we have here with you, um, you know, it sounds like you all are in a really exciting phase of, of your company and, and growth. So what's next? What's on your mind uh, for, for Lanza Tech? Yeah, um, so... I talked about ethanol a lot. That's what our our bug currently makes. Um, But we're teaching the bug new tricks. Um, We're actually genetically modifying it to make other chemicals directly. So you were talking about ethanol and ethylene. I'd love to be able to make other chemicals like acetone, um, 
that is used for making acrylics directly from these waste gases. Um, you know, 30% of the growth in petroleum use is actually going to be uh, to make chemicals. And mm. so we got to take a bite out of that. And, and oh. so for me, taking wastes and turning them into chemicals, that's just super exciting. And it could really have a real impact. Well, that's a, that's terrific and interesting to hear. I'm glad it sounds like they they won over the skeptic, and now you really get to get <laughs> use your skills uh, for the next phase. So, thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Holmgren, the CEO of Lanza Tech. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM One Thirty Two. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.